0: Nate Hockman is here. He is an ISI fellow at National Review. I'm also joined by our own Rachel Altman, Tech Freedom's Director of Digital Media. Nate is going to be talking with Rachel and me about free speech and social media. More specifically, perhaps, we'll be talking about the American right and social media. And we're definitely going to discuss Elon Musk's deal to purchase Twitter, because how could we not? Maybe we'll also dip into the state of right-wing thought more generally. I'm very pleased to have Nate here. You might say that he is stepping into hostile territory a bit. He and some of my Tech Freedom colleagues have been known to mix it up on Twitter. Uh, But I hope he'll feel uh, at home and that we can learn something from each other, suss out some of the places where we agree and disagree. Here's a subplot for the show. Is our politics a fluid mess, or am I just a politically homeless squish? Uh, so stick with us to find out. I think this will be a fun one. This, of course, is the Tech Policy Podcast. I am
1: Corbin Barthold. Nate, welcome. Corbin, it's good to be here, and uh, it's you know I'm happy to be behind enemy lines for once. Nice,
0: nice. Well, I've heard it said that uh, there aren't enough podcasts where people kind of mix it up and disagree. So we'll hopefully fix that. And then I've heard people say that Twitter just makes people into uh, yelling kind of like the way people act in traffic. And so maybe we can (laughs) have some some peace and love. Rachel, welcome to you too. How are you? How is it going?
2: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here again. And I'm really excited that we have Nate on because Nate and I have talked about politics a lot, but we've never actually gotten into a detailed conversation about tech policy before. So I'm excited to hear his thoughts.
0: Good, good. Well, as I said, social media, speech, um maybe uh, conservative philosophy, we'll see. But uh, there's an easy place for us to start because I I think we can all find common ground on it. Uh, One of the items in the news today that I wanted to bring up, so I'll just dive right out with it, is the Disinformation Governance Board. This is a body uh, within the Department of Homeland Security Um, my understanding is it is meant to be a, quote, internal working group with no, I don't know what this means, but no, quote, operational authority or capability. It seems like if that's your situation, maybe calling it the disinformation governance board is an incredibly tone deaf, stupid thing to do. Um, But uh, it's been in the news a lot in part because it has a, uh, you know, people use 1984 uh, way too much. It's such a cliche and it's it's hyperbole most of the time, but they literally set up a government body that would, it sounds like, function like the Ministry of Truth in 1984. It just, and oh, and final thought before I hand it off, Jen Psaki in a press conference, uh, White House press secretary said something to the effect of like, who could be against that? I don't know, uh, paraphrasing. So, Let's start off with that. Who wants to be the first uh, a- after me to kick the disinformation governance board in the shins?
1: Well, I'll just I'll just step in really uh, quickly and say that I think it's, um you know, this is one of the sort of libertarian conservative unity ticket uh, issues, uh, which is that regardless of what you think about, you know, all the stuff I'm sure we'll discuss about big tech and the government's role in Silicon Valley, et cetera, et cetera. I think, you know, a, uh, a government bureaucracy coming out and. Uh, telling us that they are basically going to police what an administration that has called many things and stories that turn out to actually be true, disinformation initially, when it's politically inconvenient to them, uh, when they are going to turn around and tell us that they're going to be policing, what kind of speech that they deem to be disinformation. I think it should be discomforting to Americans of any you know variety of ideological backgrounds. And to their credit, some of my intellectually honest leftist friends, who sort of have the old school, I mean, they're serious leftists, right? They're, they're not sort of uh, mainstream progressives, but they have the old school 1980s era leftist suspicion of sort of the security state have also been very critical uh, of the Biden administration. So hopefully we can cobble together this weird trans ideological coalition to <laughs> bring down whatever the Biden administration is planning to do with this stuff. Yeah that meme from Predator with like the two ripped
0: arms locking, locking. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Uh, Rachel thoughts?
2: Well, I thought it was so funny when she was like who would be against this cuz it's like oh my gosh, everyone I know Jen <laughs> it was it was so shocking to me that she would say that because most people I guess in my own circles and maybe that's just my bias do have an aversion to this sort of centralized conception of what the truth is, what misinformation is. I don't think that even, even if this body doesn't have the authority to even do much, and even if it is named in a misleading and goofy way, that's Putting everyone's alarm bells up. I, I still think that it's not great as a concept to have this government body saying in a centralized manner, you know, this is what is correct information, this is what is misinformation. They've been wrong in the past. They don't necessarily know that much better than everyone else. And I, I think that liberals in, in the government who are looking to do this, if that agency, or if that administrative body moves forward in the future, they might not be happy under a Republican administration with what they deem misinformation or not. That might backfire on them. Mm -hmm. Maybe this is just an expression of their confidence in in how they view the, the bureaucracy and how that pans out for them politically, but it could go in the opposite direction. They might not be thrilled about that in the future.
1: Yeah, right? I, I tweeted yeah. Um, the I, I don't think Democrats have fully reckoned with the not impossible or even implausible likelihood that Donald Trump is in charge of the disinformation governance board in 2025. Yeah. Um, and it'll be very interesting to see, you know, if that happens and if they don't abolish the bureaucracy, which I would prefer. I just don't think that this should exist. You know, well, um, when I administration,
0: yeah. when I'm feeling so. less charitable, I've been known to say, yeah, liberals don't do game theory. Uh, <laughs> hey, if we, uh, uh, make this board, you know, there's no tomorrow. It's no problem. If we nuke the filibuster, you know, the Republicans will never control the Senate, that kind of thing. It's, it's really unclear to me what it's going to do. My orcas is saying, oh, it's just going to be kind of like counter speech, I guess, or like the government giving fact checking or something, but then the head of the organization, um, Jankiewicz, uh is doing Zoom calls saying, you know what would be awesome? Let's have verified Twitter accounts, be able to edit other people's tweets. That's, that. an, yeah. that's an interesting idea. So um, their messaging has really been terrible on that one. Uh, um, well, that was fun. Moving on. Uh, the big news of course is Musk and Twitter. Uh, that is not an official purchase yet, but he has a deal. Um, If it goes through, he is going to be uh, making the content moderation decisions. I assume he's not going to be sitting there individually deciding which tweets are wrong and bad, uh, as he said, basically outlining his moderation policy at a recent event. Other people will be doing it, but he's going to be setting the tone. He's going to have control if he if he takes over. Um, Nate, what's your take?
1: Yeah, so I have a piece in the next issue of the the National Review magazine about what I think musk should do uh, i think it'll probably come out in the next couple hours online but essentially anyone who tells you that they know exactly how this is going to work out i think is you know holds their own predictive capacities in too high esteem because musk is like many geniuses an insane person he's crazy you know he's uh all over the place he's uh unpredictable he tweets sort of <laughs> uh, inadvisable things um at times but he is also someone i think who both libertarians and conservatives, and anyone who's sort of uh, concerned about how Silicon Valley content moderation practices have gone in recent years. Um, And anyone who values free speech should be happy at least about his stated goals, which are essentially to return Twitter to the sort of early 2000s techno libertarian Silicon Valley view of what social media is for. And he wants to make something like Twitter politically neutral now, of course, you can get into exactly what that means and what the parameters of, of content moderation are, and also just if is actually going to be able to affect those reforms, given that there is a not insignificant portion of ideologically hostile activists within Twitter, particularly on the content moderation team that he's going to have to get past. Uh, but I think it's the best case scenario, both for conservatives like me, who are sort of more hawkish on public policy interventions in Silicon Valley, and you know, folks, I think, on the on the tech freedom side of the aisle who are not uh, interested in, in those interventions is that Musk actually depoliticizes Twitter, right? Twitter has sort of inserted itself into all these divisive political issues in recent years by really putting its thumb on the scales when it comes to content moderation. And if Musk can just remove the politicization of the Twitter content moderation and make it a platform where, you know, within sort of broadly neutral policy frameworks, people are allowed to express their views. Uh, It'll be good for the country. I think in the long term, it'll be good for Twitter. Uh, And I think, you know, maybe we don't actually have to have these arguments anymore, at least when it comes to Twitter. Okay,
0: so let's try to to parse this out, because um, when I see Trump, uh, sorry, Musk making these statements that he's been making, um, my first reaction is he clearly has not thought this through in detail. He, he, he just, he just hasn't like, he needs to study up on how this stuff works, but to people, there are people out there and I respect this opinion are saying, look, you know, okay, fine, he, he, he is speaking in generalities, but what we look forward to is the fact that he's gonna, the directional impulse. He wants to increase transparency, which a lot of people across the ideological spectrum from social media, he wants to free up the speech uh allow more to be said make it as you say strive for political neutrality and uh i hear that and i go okay great but he still is saying this stuff and a lot of people take very seriously the notion that literally let's just make it consistent with the first amendment and so here's where i wonder where the rubber hits the road and in, in maybe we um agree you know a lot or a little I look at stuff like, um, say, the Babylon Bee being suspended. And I go, you know, it's a satirical headline of a public figure. Like, maybe this is going too far. Maybe you guys need to loosen things up. That's a very different statement from, well, they should just follow the First Amendment. You want to promote suicide online. You want to um, help other people be better at being anorexic. You want to tell parents of fallen soldiers, thank God for IEDs go for it, do it on our platform, that's great. Um, And what I think happens is, and this happens a lot in politics, I can look at the left during the gay marriage debate, there were a lot of people who were like, love is love. And I'm like, okay, you're fighting for a public policy, gay marriage, saying love is love. So like what, bestiality? Like maybe you should narrow it down and actually like argue your position instead of having a slogan. And my suspicion, is that the, like, just do the First Amendment thing is kind of a slogan along the lines of, like, love is love. It sounds good, but then that's not really what people mean. What they really mean is, like, stop picking on the
1: Babylon B." So what do you think of everything I just threw at you? Yeah, I think, I mean, first of all, it's it's true that the the First Amendment, I think, contains core principles about not putting your thumb on the scale, particularly when it comes to political speech, which... Um, is is something that is given particular deference when it comes to First Amendment um, jurisprudence. But obviously, the internet is not the same thing as an old school public square that existed in the time that the First Amendment was written. Uh, and you know, public policymakers are still grappling, often in good faith, with how exactly to apply uh, the principles that I would hope you know libertarians and conservatives would agree are important surrounding uh, free and open robust exchange of ideas to this entirely new technological landscape that has been unleashed um, really only in the last five or 10 years in, in the way that it, that it has been, um, and how to secure the kind of free and open debate that has been the backbone of the American political tradition in these new mediums. And I I will say, like, for my side, as much as I am hawkish on some form of public policy intervention to secure those things. I think it's the, the only viable way forward. I also freely admit that I don't think our public policy thinking is advanced enough yet to really fully affect those reforms. I think a lot of our policymakers haven't fully, you know, wrestled with exactly what it means to have a effective policy that actually secures something like free speech. So the First Amendment stuff, to a certain extent, political sloganeering is just an aspect of politics, and it's worth saying. That also Elon Musk has had sort of contradictory public statements on this, because on the one hand, he talks about the First Amendment, but he also you know has admitted recently that he thinks some form of content moderation should exist. And, you know, you need to crack down on the bots, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And so, I, I,
0: I yeah. just press that a step further. Anytime he's given actual hard cases like um, the line between a true threat and just a nasty statement, he backtracks. He totally retreats mm-hmm. from his his First Amendment slogan. But please go
1: ahead. Right. But I I think that actually gets to the fact that like the sort of First Amendment slogan isn't like Musk has actually been pretty clear that he's interested in insofar as he has a coherent sort of set of reforms and an agenda for Twitter that he is talking about something that falls short of the strict First Amendment, you know, Brandenburg test kind of scrutiny. So I think, again, the First Amendment stuff, it's more A, it's just political sloganeering and B, it's more I think the best reading of it is just sort of a slogan to suggest that we want to have this robust exchange of political ideas where a particular ideology isn't given precedence over another one when it comes to content moderation. But in practice, I I, I don't think that's what Musk has said that he actually wants to do.
0: So you mentioned neutrality and who can be against neutrality? Um, Obviously, a lot of people are going to reject the notion that Twitter is neutral, no matter what And I can tell you there are people on the left who who they point at their own examples of um, you know like an account doing blue leaks and getting booted or you know they say they kind of actually there is a flip side to the debate of like well all of the top executives here are men that shows you that there's this misogynist bent and there is a degree to which just we live in a divisive enough society there's always going to be people who are unhappy with how this goes. but, I hear you. Like, I've actually written on this and said, Musk should stop making it sound like he's going to do, like, he's going to get the knobs just right and do content moderation in a way that's going to make people happy. That is a fool's errand. Uh, But what he should do is try to increase trust, try to make people have more confidence that this process is not biased against them one way or the other. How much, when he shows up, you mentioned the employees there. Do you think he there's a possibility he could shake it up and get it so a a large swath of society feels, look, there's a group of people with diverse priors making these decisions. Twitter is more reflective, I I don't know, like of the country as a whole. And like, do you have hope for that? Uh, Do you have hope that it could end up being neutral or is it just sort of like he's going to take a crack, but you think this is doomed?
1: Well, in some ways, hope is not a very conservative impulse. I think <laughs> conservatism is <laughs> political pessimism operationalized. Um, but I, I do think it's possible, right? And I, I think there are a suite of reforms, some of which Musk has talked about pretty openly, that would move the ball in the right direction in a really real substantive way. As I said in the in the piece that i'm I'm doing for NR, uh, there are real questions about whether or not Musk is the man for the job because, maybe precisely because he's the kind of guy who actually can buy Twitter and is crazy enough to try it. He's also, uh, often unfocused, uh, undisciplined, you know, erratic, et cetera. He owns two or three other major companies and he's going to have to really be willing to go to the wire to fight for Twitter and fight in the trenches and, and probably fire some people, frankly. Um, and the question is whether or not he has the energy and time and focus to actually engage in that long term fight to reform Twitter. So those are all reasons you know, for potential pessimism or at least skepticism of his reform projects. But with that being said, if he really commits to it and if he surrounds himself with a good team, which I think is really, really important, precisely because as you mentioned earlier, he is not fully cognizant, I think, of exactly how Twitter works in, in the sort of nuts and bolts issues, uh, he could reform it, right? And, and that would mean going after particularly the content moderation team, you know, run by people like uh, Vijaya, who are pretty bought into the sort of disinformation ideology that you see driving a lot of elite progressive thinking and, you know, underpins the DHS DHS Disinformation Governance Board. Uh, He's going to have to go to war with those people. He's probably going to have to fire some executives who oppose his reforms. Um, And he's also going to have to, I think, to increase trust, do things like make the algorithms open source. Uh, But those are things that you can do. And you can overcome resistance if you really commit to it because he is probably going to take the platform private, which means he's insulated from pressure from external shareholders. Um, but again, it's it remains to be seen whether or not he actually has the commitment and discipline and focus and just raw time to actually try to affect those reforms.
0: Um, I'm going to avoid diving down the rabbit hole of what does opening the algorithm mean? We could do a whole episode on... <laughs> the confusion over that, but I'm going to move on to um, the design of Twitter. Rachel, I'm going to start with you here, but Nate, I'm also curious to hear your thoughts. We're getting into these debates over content moderation of sort of what's in, what's out. And I feel like something that gets lost in that conversation often is, are people people happy with the way Twitter's designed? I mean, Twitter, uh, it was pointed out by uh, internet researcher, Renee DiResta. I mean, the town square and Nate kind of touched on this too. The town square analogy is is weird. It's kind of wacky. Like you don't see a hundred people ch- chasing after a single person shrieking at them in the town square. Like that's not really how town square discourse. <laughs> Although works. that
1: has happened at various points in American history. <laughs> True,
0: fair. Um, I don't think that's what people are picturing though when they say right, they want right. like a town square of discussion. Um, it is a system that's wide open. You know, people do dunk quote tweets. Uh, they get into these spats, as I mentioned at the outset, our own organization, and Nate, you know, it's kind of a pastime. Did we? Um, I, didn't,
1: I didn't notice that. that ah!
0: Happened. Yeah. Um, should we be focusing more, Rachel, on whether Twitter is promoting healthy conversation? That's obviously Jack Dorsey's. He's said that's a goal many times. And, and are, are there tweaks you could imagine that maybe would just make the rhetoric on the site uh, uh, better and sort of tone down some of this. And a related question, um, isn't that kind of necessary if Musk is going to like quadruple the user base, which was his stated goal in a slide deck that leaked? I mean, I don't know if normal people actually like, like I tweeted something the other day and random person comes in and uh, it was about Musk. And he says, that guy created self-driving cars and you have a shitty haircut. The end. I thought it was pretty funny, but I'm not sure normal people like they enjoy that. So um, anyway, Rachel, go ahead.
2: Yeah, I think Twitter attracts like a weird segment of the population and and you can look at that when you look at like Twitter's user base, but it's it's definitely people who seem to like that sort of argument and, and people who can roll with the punches on that. I mean, I love my Twitter haters. They've said some really funny things to me. One of them told me to go back to Nantucket. I've never been to Nantucket. I didn't know exactly what that meant, but I found it entertaining. A lot of people wouldn't. I just, I don't know necessarily what it means For Twitter to be a platform that promotes a healthier conversation, because what that means is different to everyone. Like, even the notion of civility and the value of that, it's so diverse in how people interpret it. Because there are some people that are like, civility is absolutely what's missing from our political discourse. We need a more respectful conversational tone. And then on the other hand, you get people who, take the the opposite approach and are like, no, we have too much civility. People aren't fighting hard enough. These are people who literally hate us. There are people who want us dead is a refrain that you always hear. And without being uncivil, we're not going to have these victories. And, And some people would say that's important for a healthier public conversation because it gets you closer to justice. And so this idea of what is a healthy style of conversation that Twitter could promote, is sort of its own behemoth. I, I think that a lot of people who could potentially be attracted to Twitter and grow the platform who aren't on it already probably would enjoy moderation strategies or design that encourage a little bit more civility, but I don't really know how I would do that. I mean, I I've heard that Twitter is considering offering this feature, that's it's sort of like your close friend's story on Instagram where you can publish a tweet and it's it's only available to a group of people that you select in that way. I mean, it's sort of like a private account, but only for particular tweets where you could sort of, I guess, float something out to your friends and and see how they receive it. And then maybe you can put it out to a wider audience. So maybe that could help to, I don't know help people be a little less controversial if they don't want to attract controversy and they don't want to get into something that might get them viral in the wrong way. But I mean, I I think Twitter almost tried this in the past where they were like, you can turn off replies, you can like choose who you want in your replies. And they thought maybe that would make the conversation healthier and more friendly. But in some ways, it actually enabled pylons even more, because when you can't reply and you really want to say something about somebody with a really bad take, you're going to quote tweet it. And it's probably going to get disseminated to even more of your followers if you quote tweet it than if you were to just reply. And then you get these insane ratios and these dumb campaigns that while I haven't really been on the receiving end of those, I can't imagine that they feel too good. So I, I think that perhaps it would be nice for attracting new users for Twitter to promote a more healthy and civil discourse. But when they've tried it, I don't really know if they've achieved it. So I'm not sure what they would do going forward.
0: Okay. Well, Nate, you get whatever content moderation policy on Twitter you want and that's settled. Is there anything else on the product you
1: change? Yeah, uh, well, I guess this probably ties into the content moderation thing, but one um, policy reform that I think is really interesting that isn't being talked about enough, but was suggested to me um, by someone who works in tech, is a decentralization of just how content moderation moderation um, is structured, and probably just a decentralization of Twitter in general, um, which would sort of look like something approximating what Reddit looked like initially before Reddit sort of bought into a lot of the sort of progressive disinformation stuff where you leave a lot of the content moderation decisions up to local communities um, and you push sort of the way that Twitter is structured in general and a lot of the decision-making down to local communities because then you actually don't necessarily have to wrestle with these divisive big picture, one-size-fits-all content moderation solutions. You can have a variety of different sort of sub-Twitters almost in which different policies and rules are decided on based on what best fits the needs and views of of, uh, users. So that's like, I think a longer term reform that is interesting. Uh, But I think that in general, and this is probably something libertarians to an extent agree with conservatives on, decentralization politically across the board is a great way to just bring down the temperature because it doesn't require one size fits all uh, solution. So I think that is certainly something that should be considered. I also think moving Twitter out of San Francisco, which is something that Musk uh, has floated, and he's previously moved you know, Tesla from Palo Alto to Austin, uh, is a good way to take the, the sort of environment in which Twitter C-suite executives live and work out of the most left-wing city in the country, which has a lot of these biases built into it, Um, And I think that could also probably bring Twitter closer to the way of life that most Americans live outside of uh, San Francisco. So stuff like that is definitely worth looking at. And then the the stuff that we talked about in terms of algorithmic transparency, potentially trying to make Twitter less dependent on an advertiser model, which reduces the pressure from conflict-averse corporate backers, um, would be something that's worth considering. So there's a suite of reforms Musk can do. Uh, but I think in many ways, the issues surrounding Twitter and the, the political debates surrounding Twitter really do center around ideological, political disputes that are really uh, the the site of those debates is surrounding content moderation. Blue Sky, like actually almost everything you said, we have a lot of agreement
0: there. So Twitter's working on Blue Sky, which is their attempt at decentralization. It's an independent company that they're supporting. Unfortunately, um Just moving so slowly. So we'll see if they ever get to that. But I agree with you about decentralization wholeheartedly. And it really, once you make it a local sort of almost like federal, a federalized issue online, what you're left with is the Sort of more <laughs> like pearl clutchy progressives. It's like, oh my God, people are talking to each other. Mm-hmm. It's like that's <laughs> where it's a republic. Like if people want to share crazy stuff with each other in groups, like if you have a problem with that, I don't know, I don't know what to tell you. Um, and moving the headquarters, you know, I think that's a totally legitimate uh, th- thing to float. I mean, as someone who is sitting here in the Bay Area, um, it connects to my thought on on trust. And just I don't think it's unfair to say that people should look at the uh, organization that has the amount of power they do. It's less power than a lot of people claim it is, but it's still power and say, you know, we should we should see you as sort of a little more reflective of the nation as a whole. So, Nate, you don't have to have a take on this, but I am curious, I, you know, when I look at content moderation, you um, a few of the things that have happened more recently give me a little more heartburn. And I'm definitely one of the people who think that like the Hunter Biden laptop thing was totally thumbless. And like, I'm not going to defend that decision. Um, even though they, they kind of had their reasons. Like, it, I don't think of it as like they were sitting in a room going, we're going to, you know, tilt the election. Um, but that said, there were earlier decisions in, in the years sort of leading up to this, that I not only was I comfortable with them, I kind of, Felt like they were a favor to Republicans like I actually thought booting all the QAnon junk from Twitter like that was doing Republicans a favor um, do you see it that way or uh, will you be pleased to see like QAnon restored to Twitter if Musk has control
1: will I be pleased <laughs> you know I'm not I don't I'm not a QAnon believer so I I, I think that those guys are crazy um, but I think Framing it in terms of what would be good for Republicans is not really the first principle by which I approach Twitter. I am a Republican. I have plenty of frustrations with the Republican party, but I'd prefer that Republicans be elected than, than Democrats be elected. Uh, but I also think the policies that we should be looking at should be with an eye to the long-term health and uh, uh, just general sort of flourishing of the country and of, you know, of Americans rather than the short-term political interests of a party. So will letting Alex Jones back on Twitter or something, you know, pick your sort of right-wing conspiracy theorist, be good or bad for Republicans? Well, pro- probably bad, maybe. I don't know, actually. it's We can't really know the counterfactual, uh, but is a content moderation strategy that doesn't pick winners and losers very similar to the way that free speech has worked? In America to one extent or another, at least since Brandenburg, but really, I mean, we have a long, robust tradition of free speech. Um, is that is that the best way to approach these questions? I think so. I, I just don't trust the San Francisco trust and safety team to make these calls. And even if you think one call or the other was good for Twitter or for America, or for the Republican party or for whatever, by, uh, by justifying those on an individual basis, you are setting the precedent that they do get to make decisions based on ideological actors, because of course, the same people who are censoring, uh, you know, whatever picture QAnon conspiracy theorists have no problem with, you know, the Ayatollah of Iran calling for the mass genocide of Jews, right? Like, so it, it, these, these things are applied unequally. And until I'm confident that the content moderation team actually does have a neutral standard by which they censor the fringes of both sides of the ideological spectrum or however you want to frame it. Uh, And there's questions if that's even possible. I'm not particularly comfortable with them making one particular call that I might, you know, I might enjoy my Twitter user experience more if I'm not getting yelled at by a QAnon person, but uh, do I think that they should have that power? No, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical.
0: Well, I think that actually connects to the issue of why I think trust is so important because there's always going to be inconsistency. Like content moderation at scale is just impossible. There will always be, no matter how well it's done, you will always be able to point to something that's the equivalent of like, well, look at the Ayatollah here versus Alex Jones there. And there's always gonna be context and facts. Actually, one of my problems with the Facebook oversight board is their decisions. They have this veneer of precision to them. And it's always kind of a gut call. Like there's you can always point to things in the different cases. Well, this person, it was actually directed at a private individual, or this person there was actually like, Uh, a crowd that was ready to act on it. This person, the tweet was just ignored. It didn't go anywhere. So it wasn't some kind of raising alarm. So I think it's far more important to have everybody feel that they trust the decision makers because we're always going to be able to grouse over these kinds of decisions. Um, But I wanted to raise it a level higher with you because you're saying um, a, a good, strong, you know, you're, you're making a principled argument and Acknowledging that that's not always going to get you the outcomes that you want—that's that's that's, you know kudos. But how does that principle that you were just talking about about sort of like a social media um, you know let it flow you know it's a it's a kind of chaotic free for all which you know it's kind of America in general that's our history. But um, you're also um, conservative, um, and I'm not pinning this on you. Feel free to disagree with any of these principles, but, you know, there's a tradition in conservatism of um, promoting, you know, the Judeo-Christian tradition, religious values, order, um, sort of community, uh, you know, all that good sort of Russell Kirk, Roger Scruton stuff. And if there's anything we're learning about the internet, um, you know, I had Martin Gurry on the show and he's one of my favorite guests, wrote a book called The, the Revolt of the Public, where he just talks at length about the way that, you know, the social media, it's it's a way for those, it, it flattens the information pyramid it, and it flattens hierarchies and allows sort of everybody to yell at each other. And it makes it so that there's really no way to have um, authority or order in the way that those august people I just named, you know, had in their mind. So um, that's kind of a lot to throw at you, but but do you see your position on social media fitting into a larger conservative platform? I mean, that's a tough question. I'm not saying there's a clear answer to that, but have you thought much about that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think uh, you could say a lot of things about the sort of Silicon Valley cartel, but them being guided primarily by Judeo-Christian principles is probably not one of them. Uh, I think you're right, absolutely, that the internet and social media in particular is this chaotic force for sort of undermining social traditions and cohesion and generally just sowing chaos uh, in American political life. And cards on the table, in my conservative utopia, which is never actually going to come about, Like these platforms never would have risen to prominence in the first place. I think the net effect on our political discourse of something like Facebook and Twitter has certainly been more negative than positive. Um, and has caused all these long-term problems that you can point to that we're going to be wrestling with for generations until we actually can forge some kind of consensus about how we integrate this new technology that has been unleashed into the broader sort of uh, shape of American politics. Uh, But with that being said, you know, one of the first principles of conservatism is engaging with the world as it is rather than as we'd like it to be and being guided by a Uh, clear-eyed view of of political reality rather than sort of abstract principle. Um, That doesn't mean principles aren't important, but the fact is that these platforms are here to stay. They are increasingly integrated into the way that American politics works, at least at the elite level. Uh, And we have to figure out the best way forward, as imperfect as that may be. And as much as our preferred policies will also probably have downsides, right? Like Another basic conservative principle is that Every policy has trade-offs. There's no perfect policy. There's no policy that doesn't have side effects or negative consequences. So for me, from that framework, with the basic conservative values that that you described aptly, uh, I think I am much more interested in a platform that tries to, or an approach to these platforms that tries to replicate the long time-honored American tradition of free speech than one in which, Uh, again, the San Francisco trust and safety team basically gets to decide what is said and what isn't said. And that doesn't mean that these platforms won't have serious consequences for social cohesion and, you know, the American cultural tradition and all of those things. And we should seek to try to curb their negative consequences for those things whenever possible. But that is not the same thing as saying that uh, the Twitter content moderation team gets to decide whether or not you can question the efficacy of masks or you know whether or not the Hunter Biden laptop story gets to be shared, et cetera, et cetera. You can go down the list. Uh, believing in order is not the same thing as believing in authoritarianism or censorship at all, at all points. Uh, believing in order, at least in the conservative tradition, is believing in a specific order that's ordered around the truth. It's not the same thing as just imposing one particular view overall other things. There is actually a a specific view of the good that we believe in. And I don't think that's the one that's being championed by a lot of the folks uh, in the Twitter C-suite right now.
2: An added dimension of this is that because Twitter and because social networks in general are often this very global platform, I do see why a lot of conservatives would not be satisfied with the direction that they take discourse. Because with Twitter being a really good outlet to forge these global communities, these communities that are based around, you know, political interests or different personal interests and affiliations and cultural affiliations you're you're seeing a lot of sort of these like long distance communities across borders that are not really in line with what I think of at least as the modern or traditional conception of like what the conservative utopia would be. I mean, I think that conservatives have pushed this idea of, you know, local community, wanting to affiliate with the people in your family, in perhaps the area of your children's school, your church, um, and that's where you would base your community around and not necessarily based on these categories that people tend to sort themselves in based on affinity online. Um, And I think that's even exacerbated by the more nationalist bent that Uh, conservatism has leaned into over the last several years. So I I can understand it from that perspective. I mean, I I love Twitter. I I love the communities that I've built, but I think that even the very premise of the way that Twitter is used and the way that it currently builds community, I could see why that would not be thrilling for a traditional conservative.
1: And I would just add really quickly um, to to Rachel's uh, very articulate point, which is that I think one of the best ways to try to reconcile these massive multinational networks with the American nation state, frankly, is why I'm so bullish on decentralization. Because trying to push Twitter down to as local a level as possible, and to create these spaces within these broad platforms and networks for some form of local self-determination actually does empower communities to be more self-governing, both in the digital world and I think insofar as Twitter spills over into the real world in in real physical communities. But that decentralization necessarily requires a much more hands-off level at the top level, right? So again, at the top, I think you need a really, really hands-off sort of approach from the content moderation teams. But if if you subsequently implement this sort of decentralization, A lot of local communities can do things that I might disagree with, or a progressive might disagree with, but they get to do those within, in the same way that we have a federalist system or we're supposed to have a federalist system uh, in the American American government. um, It would be the the same sort of approach, right? Yes, ideally, you know, uh, our constitution says we have a federalist system. Um, The the genius of that constitutional design, I think very much can be applied to reforming Twitter and social media and Silicon Valley and big tech in general. in the long term.
0: Yeah, I want to put in a quick word for the fact that um, I do think there are people who are isolated. um, Just use one example, you know, teens who don't really fit in, you know, have that terrible high school experience for whom there is actually real connection online. And so sometimes I do push back uh, against the notion that, oh, it's it's, um, synthetic, or it's not as good as the real thing. And like, well, maybe that's true. But but people do, the internet has brought people together in a way that's positive, and I'm not totally cynical about that. Um, and I I do think it's a worthy goal to try and, uh, you know, I, it sounds like we all do have a lot of agreement on it, like decentralization might be a route to create some semblance of real community online, and that that's a positive thing. Um, you know, one of the difficulties, I think, as I look at the history of conservatism is sometimes it, it upholds these values that I find appealing, but it kind of means a specific conception. So we say community, but we mean a specific kind of community. And and, um, the way that something like, say, Blue Sky could let a thousand flowers bloom, I think that's quite positive. Um, You know, maybe Elon Musk will discover that owning a single... uh, hundred million person town square where we're all screaming at each other is not as appealing as owning something that looks like a collective of semi-autonomous civic groups that sort of set the rules for themselves. Um, So actually, I I think in terms of the decentralization, we're we're, 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 kind of hand in hand a lot. Um, Well, great. Nate, You've been really fun. This has been a good talk uh, mm. more broadly. What's going on with you? What are you working on these days? What's interesting? Uh, what's on your mind? Do you have anything out that you want or, or coming up that you want to uh, promote? You know, what's going on in the world of Nate Hockman?
1: <laughs> well, I guess I, as far as it's pertinent to this conversation, I've already talked about it a couple of times, but pretty soon here, I think my, my piece on Elon Musk um, is going to be published. And I wouldn't be surprised based on this conversation if you guys basically agree with most of it, because, it doesn't get into anything to do with Section 230 or government. It really just has to do with the way forward um, for Musk. So if folks are interested in, to read that, they want to yell at me uh, <laughs> in the new digital public square about something they disagree with, uh, they can follow me at N-J-H-O-C-H-M-A-N on Twitter, um, and I'll share that piece and anything else I write about tech or anything else on there. Well, great, um,
0: Nate. This has, again, been very good. Nate Hockman of, uh, of National Review. Um, Rachel, Digital Media Director of Tech Freedom. It's been great to have you on as well. I am Corbin Barthold, Internet Policy Counsel at Tech Freedom. This has been the Tech Policy Podcast. Rate us five stars wherever you listen. Till next time.
2: The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.